At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, welcome to PSR People Speaking Rail. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Bowden-Distel, joined as always by Joanna Marsh, who does editorial writing at Freight Waves. And uh, I guess you were able to make it on. You were having some technical difficulties a minute ago, but um, but there you are in high definition. How are you yeah. today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the world may know now. I, I have I use a cheap Chromebook and. Um, and, you know, the, the camera looked a little bit funny. And I'm like, hmm, I don't remember the camera looking like that. And then I tried to uh, to, to use it just now, and all I saw was red. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's that's that. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to use my phone from now on for these things or if, uh, if it's an excuse to get an, another laptop, if not a Chromebook, or get a webcam. I don't know. So we'll see. I, I'm actually kind of old school and... And I suppose I should get all the fancy gadgets, right? Like the, the webcam and the, and the microphone and all of that. But um, I don't know. <laughs> I think make a difference. I guess I'm the other, the other uh, point that some people have is you should really do podcasts in your, um, in your closet because this clothes absorb the noise. But then it's like, well, I have everything else in front of my desk and I'll just have to, you know. But, but if you really want to have a professional podcast, go in your closet <laughs> is, what, is what I've heard. It sounds the best there. Um, so you've been... Um, so I guess before your your computer um, crashed, you were put out a lot of articles here, a lot on railroad safety, which has been a big topic here. And that's just and that's just and that's just one of them. I mean, there's just one on the FRA and OSHA calling on Norfolk Southern to review safety practices. You also wrote about one that was um, really unfortunate on uh, CSX. You know, a couple of, of conductors died. What can you tell us about um, you know those articles? Yeah. So. Um... I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was coordinated unless you think it's a government conspiracy. But <laughs> um, yesterday, um, the Federal Railroad Administration um, and uh, the Occupational Safety, uh, OSHA, OSHA, I'm sorry, <laughs> Safety and Health. Uh, I don't know. Oh my gosh. Something live TV. I don't remember what OSHA stands for. Um, but I know it's Occupational Safety and Health. So there you go. Um, uh, they separately... Um, released reports or, or findings um, related to um, what they had learned about um, from studying uh, the, the causes and sort of the, the conditions um, related to the February 3rd derailment of the Norfolk Southern train in East Palestine, Ohio. So I think OSHA's came out first. Um, they both came out in the afternoon. OSHA's came out first and it was uh, saying that uh, the it so the agency um, Norfolk Southern and um, the uh, Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way, um, uh, so the union representing um, maintenance of way uh, employees, um, which is affiliated with the Teamsters, 
um, they had also they had all reached a settlement agreement um, on uh, some um, citations that that OSHA found um, from uh, from um, um, not causes, but from um, from how uh, Norfolk Southern responded to the derailment. So um, so the union um, had um, alerted OSHA or had told had contacted OSHA um, earlier this spring saying that it felt that um, that uh, s- some members felt that you know they weren't um, being protected in the way that they should have been protected in responding to um, the derailment which um, which also included um, the um, I can't think of the word right now but it's uh, there were several hazardous tank car um, there are several tank cars carrying hazardous materials, and um, and they had to do a planned venting of um, the vinyl chloride cars to, um, out of concern that um, that you know that that the chemical uh, reaction would cause you know a, an explosion. It seemed um, that's just you know the decision of the time, um, and so uh, because of the hazmat materials involved, um, uh, some union made us away. Um, members have felt that they uh, that their health had been or their safety had been jeopardized, and so um, OSHA investigated Norfolk Southern um, uh, an environmental consultancy firm involved um, in the cleanup, as well as two other um, companies involved in the cleanup, and um, and OSHA cited um, Norfolk Southern for for several, um, I think four instances in particular. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then the, one of the other companies involved in the cleanup was also side. Um, so Norfolk Southern will pay, um, the, uh, the, the penalties, which I think is over 40,000, um, provided that. And I guess the settlement agreement, <laughs> uh, goes back to, I think, sort of everyone kind of coming to a consensus about, um, what the citations were. So, so you have that. And then later in the day, um, the Federal Railroad Administration released its, um, assessment of uh, Norfolk Southern safety culture uh, and um, and it was kind of mixed in the sense that you know that that there were some things that um, Norfolk Southern they thought was, was good at was good at or you know was working uh, well towards um, and then there were some other things kind of they for- pointed to four general areas where um, where they thought that Norfolk Southern could improve, and um, and of course, you know, Norfolk Southern said, you know, we'll work on this stuff. Um, the other interesting kind of stepping back is that um, so this is the first uh, assessment of uh, FRA safety culture kind of assessment that um, that he said he planned to do after Norfolk Southern. It said later on, um, I think in June. That uh, that they were actually going to conduct assessments of um, the safety cultures of all the other Class One railroads. So Norfolk Southern's here, the first one, but then you were so also probably going. You know, you're going to see um, the other ones come out as well. So each so individual reports for each railroad, and then um, another sort of wider report looking at uh, the industry at large. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, you know what commonalities if any or you know just just how how each individual railroad performs um 
or you know what what F- FRA funds and in, in all it, it is hard to assess culture because it's not something that seems objective to me. Like some some people might think a certain corporate environment is toxic, and other people say, "Well, this is just how businesses are. This is fine, or it's not any worse than other places I've been." And and, and those things, and and you know, just different people could have very different experiences. Some people might say, "Well, the, the training on safety was." was just fine. Other people might say, well, we're only given 30 seconds to evaluate a rail car. I mean, you're talking about uh, rail class one railroads of tens of thousands of people. It might have a good safety culture in some areas and not in others, uh, in some terminals, not in others. So yeah, all those things I think is a little bit hard to assess. It, the other thing that stands out about that discussion you, um, with, with the OSHA is that the, um, the workers that were on the train, the locomotive engineer and the conductor that were on that um, infamous train, February 3rd, it was clear from what both the railroad said and from government regulators that those those employees did nothing wrong. And so it, it's it's these MOW workers, those would be the ones responsible for maintaining the maintenance of way. And there's been a lot of discussion of whether or not the, um, you know, the, the detectors, those hot box detectors were... Um, you know, installed properly, maintained properly, if that was a mechanical failure, was that something? So I think that's maybe why uh, that union specifically wanted to come out and and, and defend its um, it, its workers there. So it's still, I think, a lot of, of stories you're going to be writing, um, you know, it sounds like in the coming uh, weeks, coming months about uh, railroad uh, safety as, as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting too because um, the... Um you know, there, there have been some reports recently kind of looking at, uh, you know, it's, it's been the six month anniversary of East Palestine and, you know, what's the status of the rail safety bill. Um, and right now it's still, you know, awaiting um, a, a, a greater hearing in, in, in the Senate floor. Um, of course, the committee um, uh, passed it, but then, you know, it's still waiting for a vote and just for debate on the floor. And so, um, you know, there's questions, you know, <laughs> but will it actually reach the floor or not um and uh and you know is that going to happen in september or or you know that that kind of thing and then of course you also have um that the house of representatives with you know how what's the likelihood of um some sort of rail safety bill um getting through the the house of representatives so there's still actually quite a bit to go through um and uh, you know those who have been advocating for this current rail safety bill as in, in this present iteration um uh you know I, I think they're a little concerned um that uh that uh that that progress is stalled um i don't know if it was of course interesting you know earlier on um with the accident still kind of fresh in everyone's mind sort of the the rail industry kind of being um careful about like what <laughs> uh, what, what how how they approach rail safety and and you know and that they're um and that there are actually a number of provisions um, in the bill that uh, that the rail industry and, and shippers have, um, you know, kind of had a hand in, which some people say good, some people say you know depends on, but but um, but but it is, um, I guess you could argue sort of a more informed bill than perhaps its initial iteration. But then again, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the bill period? So yeah, we'll watch this story closely for sure. Uh, want to move on to another story that you wrote. It's on uh, BNSF's Sandpoint Junction project is finally completed. Have some art on that uh, as well. Uh, good looking bridge there. Um, looks like a beautiful part of the country there in um, Iowa, I- Idaho. I've not been out there um, to see that, but 
Uh, I read this article, um, you know, also that, that you wrote, and uh, I guess what struck me is that it was proposed back in 2017. They got the permitting done in 2018, and, and here we are now, 2023, and it's it's finally done. Why does it take so long to to get a bridge built? Um, was there, was there anything? Is that is that typical? Do you have any idea, or is or is there something about this that just causes it to take longer? Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I I would think, you know, the of course the the, the actual construction and engineering. Obviously, you can see it. It, it is a beautiful scene, and just you kind of wonder like how how you would build a, a second, you know, not being an engineer, like how you would build a second bridge across that that lake, which you know has quite a span from the one shoreline to another. Um, I would think, I, I think a lot of projects um, face, I don't want to say this is really face local opposition, but I, I think there's, there's always, um, I don't know, I, I think there's, there's uh, a challenge or an opportunity um, when, when kind of approaching local communities about um, what, what benefits, uh, you know, this project might have. So I don't know if this is something that's been kind of when when they say that when BNSF uh, said that this has been kind of more in a decade in the making, is it more sort of like you know this sort of was first planned in in 2013, and then it, it took a while to 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 get the permitting for momentum forward, you know, trying to to ensure that the um, state agency would pass the permits, you know, so it, it's um, in which case I could see that you know taking three or four years. But then again, you know, I'm just kind of talking just in, in general terms. But um, but uh, yeah, I, I think um, like you said, it, it is a it is actually a really beautiful scene. I kind of like personally I'm like, oh, can I kind of keep this picture for myself? It's really pretty. But um, <laughs> but but it, I think you know that I think the bridge actually serves passenger rail as well because Amtrak shares that shares that. So it'll be yeah. Pretty, it is easy to see yeah. when you look at that picture just how that would reduce congestion because it looks like there's one line. Um, going on the one side, and that actually that part on the left looks like it might be um, it might be passenger rail. Certainly on the, on the that side on the right looks like like freight rail. So that might be part of the reason that got uh, you know passed. But but certainly can understand how that would alleviate congestion sort of in the communities, which would you, you would think that would be an easy one to to to, to get past. Um, but anyway, um, want to move on to the next uh, story? Unless you have another thought there. Oh no 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 no! That's it. I think when they they're also when BNSF was also talking about congestion, they were also referring to um, the trains having to wait um, in the local communities. So they so then you have the opportunity for block crossings that for um, they can cross. So that was also the other factor I think um, in um, so the area congestion in terms of like at least we won't have to have these trains idle for as long as they have been idling. Okay, let's move on. So the next one, he also also another article. This was um, two days ago, August eighth. I did a report. Uh, he wrote up a report. Uh, data should be driven by um, data should drive the debate on freight train lengths. So there's tra- debate on the freight train lengths. We've seen this a lot, where the, the trains are getting longer. That's more efficient. A lot of times they're using distributed power, basically locomotives in the middle of the consist to reduce those in-train forces. Um, easy to see why that's a more efficient use of a cruise, a more efficient use of fuel to have longer trains, um, potentially more efficient use of you know, the assets um, on, on the ground. And I guess the uh, counter argument is that uh, sometimes maybe the passing sidings are not as long as they 
need to be to accommodate trains that are upwards of, let's say, 2,000 foot plus in, in length. And there have been times when, um, you know, it's caused uh, basically children to have a hard time getting to school on time, uh, just, you know, first responders in some place, in some cases, haven't been able to get to where they need to be. And uh, that just causes congestion in communities. Is that the extent of the, the pushback there? Or is, there or is there more to it than that? Um, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's a lot of it. I think that there's another element um, that I don't think the report touched on as much, um, although I'd have to review the report again to, you know, to confirm that. But um, one question that um, some, uh, some crews have had is like, if you do have longer, heavier trains running on track, like how does that affect um, the, the physical track itself, like over time? You know, it's even sort of like on the highway, if you have these really big trucks, like how does that um, affect the road <laughs> over time? Um, and so, uh, like, for instance, actually, I think that's um, like last week, there was uh, um, there was something involving. Uh, oh, it was, yeah, it was the uh, NTSB's um, sort of report on the um, Amtrak derailment. And um, that happened in September 2021 in, I think, Montana. Um, and they were kind of talking about how um, the track was worn down. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not to say that longer, heavier trains were running on that track, but I think that sort of illustrates that, that question of like, what, you know, what does, what, you know, what effect does uh, longer, heavier trains have on, on, on track? And, and, um, you know, if you do decide to pursue longer trains still, um, you know, where you have the, 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 the maintenance sort of um, ready uh, to to ensure that that track, um, you know, stays uh, healthy and you know and doesn't um, uh, wear out um, as quickly as otherwise. But I, I so I think that's one other factor. Yeah. Um, and you also got a comment. Uh, you know, sometimes sometimes the comments on our articles are just complete nonsense. But you know, in this particular case, someone commented who seems to have a pretty informed view. Um, guy who says organizer railroad. Workers United, and he says the um, the the workers don't like that. They say a lot of times when the trains are too long, it's hard to fit it between the various road crossings. Um, it's sort of similar to what I was saying before about you know not maybe the the passing sidings aren't long enough. In a lot of cases, those those sidings need to be extended. I think I said two thousand you know feet earlier. I think I meant more like ten thousand feet. Call it two mile long long trains. So I want to correct myself there, but um, you know that's another perspective that I thought was an interesting uh, you know comment from the from, from the workers. Um, want to move on to, uh, this is kind of more of a fun one, but if we do infographics from time to time and we have an infographic on five surprising railroad jobs and our heading is blocking one of them. So I'll read these fuel master, um, a fuel master is trained in uh, driving techniques. Um, so that's similar to, that sounds like similar to the leader program or just how to drive a locomotive to maximize fuel efficiency. Simulations developer who is involved in um, you know, teaching employees how to maneuver locomotives. Police officer, uh, beer conductor, I guess, make sure that the beer doesn't freeze in Chicago and avalanche control. Um, so out of those five, I think the one that um, you know I, I knew about certainly was police officer. I knew the railroads had uh, their own police force to um to enforce any um, trespassing on their track. They own that track. It was gifted to them by the federal government. So I, I knew about that. Um, avalanche control 
that makes sense. I've heard a lot about um, avalanches from following Canadian Pacific. Uh, you know, over the years, they um, you know go through the Canadian Rockies. That's an issue uh, for them. So certainly, um, yeah, that's something that can can really uh, impair their uh, operations and mainline. Um, I guess the one that was most surprising to me was was, was beer conductor. Um, do you have any thoughts on any of these uh, job titles or any other job titles that you know of that are a little out there in, in the railroad world? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I had I read a story actually about the railway police. Um, like I think that got published in late June or early July. So you can check that out. But um, you know, you know, I, I have a son who's ten and and he loves um playing like train simulators on on Roblox. Um, he's actually more into subways than uh, passenger freight than than freight rail. But anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I was kind of drawn to the, um, simulations developer p- job actually. <laughs> so I'm like, Hmm, yeah, let's see how we can parlay your video game playing into a career though. <laughs> not, not unlike a tiger mom or, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so th- that kind of uh, struck me, but yeah, the beer conductor was kind of interesting as well. So yeah, they cited Cinco de Mayo, yeah. which, which makes sense because there's a lot of the beer that gets moved from Mexico in um in box cars and yeah i mean i guess still can be can be cold um kind of late in the spring goes far enough north um so i thought it was interesting i think my all-time favorite um you know railroad title is maybe hump master which a hump master is whoever's in charge of the hump yard if it's if it's not a hump, hump yard it'd be a, it'd be a train master but um that would be one that would probably um, require some explanation if you uh, told people what you did for a living and and they, so i'd say I'm a, I'm a hump master um we have about four minutes left. I'm going to go through a few sonar charts uh, quickly, spend maybe a minute on each. This first one is outbound uh, tender, um, and not, not about tender, outbound domestic container volume. So these are 53-foot containers that have been loaded. These are year-over-year charts. The white line is 2023, and it's now down in this latest um, data point about 1.3% year-over-year and uh, the third quarter kind of uh, quartered a date roughly in line with the second quarter. Now, you do have to sort of consider that the um, 4th of July holiday, more significant um, holiday for for freight than uh, the, than uh, Memorial Day in the, in the second quarter. Um, but in any event, um, kind of not seeing a tremendous amount of seasonal pickup. What is notable is the comps versus a year ago getting easier. You did have last year um, the domestic intermodal volume in addition to international intermodal volume really uh, show weakness um, in the second half of of the year. So another point I'd make here is that these this these volume trend is holding up better than the volume that you see on a weekly basis from the Association of American Railroads. The AAR data um, conflates domestic intermodal and international intermodal. Just looked at that. Um, you know, it was published on Wednesday. It's showing U.S. containers down 3.6% year over year in the last week, down 4.9% the past four weeks. And here we have just looking at domestic loaded containers, 53-foot loaded containers down 1.3%. This chart now is looking at intermodal uh, spot rates. This is an average of 100 lanes. And uh, so, you know, really sometimes when you get to this part of time of the year, these start to tick up like they did in 2020 in orange, um, went up very significantly in the third quarter in 2020. Also did a similar um, pattern in 2021. Those spot rates, uh, you know, increased, and that's because the the uh, carriers will um, increase spot rates in order to protect capacity for the contracted uh, shippers. And really, did not happen last year in 2022. You see that blue line, um, you know, was, was, you know, sort of reflected that intermodal volume was weak 
second half of last year. You saw spot rates fall throughout the year, and really they've been weak all year and are still weak. But you see that latest data point there, then that white line ticked up ever so slightly in August. And so um, it really kind of reflects what we heard uh, last week from RunRail, which, uh, you know, we asked them what, uh, you know, the company that owns a certain number of containers, you know, small but growing domestic intermodal uh, you know, company, whether they think they're going to have a peak season for intermodal. And, um, you know, Chris Jocelyn said, who's a president, said maybe more of a speed bump. And so maybe with the intermodal spot rates ticking up ever so slightly, uh, let's call it uh, six or eight weeks ahead of when you typically think of the, the intermodal, you know, peak season, uh, maybe that's something that's uh, likely to happen. Um, this, this latest uh, last chart here, intermodal contract rates, uh, these are um, an average of intermodal contract rates. These exclude fuel surcharges. And in white line, again, is 2023. Those have been on a downward trajectory um, you know, all year as these contracts get repriced, but it does seem like they're maybe have stabilized because most of the intermodal volume has um, been repriced in the current uh, loose uh, freight condition. So that's a little bit of a quick overview of what's happening in um, in Sonar and the intermodal side. And uh, that's really, I think, uh, what we wanted to go over today and how can people um, find the FreightWaves Railroad uh, newsletter. Yeah, so I think uh, at the uh, at each of my articles, um, at towards the bottom, there's a link that'll okay. let you subscribe to the Rail newsletter and all the other newsletters that we have here at FreightWaves. So yeah, go check ahead it and, out. Go ahead and do that. And uh, see everyone uh, next week.